Well, good morning. It's uh, my uh, privilege to bring God's Word to you today. And the passage I've chosen for today has to do with the date. Uh, Today is the last Sunday of the month, and today is also the last Sunday of the year. And that factors into why I chose this particular psalm. And and hopefully uh, you'll uh, see why those dates are connected with our psalm as we go through this. So if you can, please open your Bibles and turn to Psalm 111. Please turn to Psalm 111, and we will read the psalm before we begin its exposition. And there God's word says this, Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart, in the company of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are to be studied by all who delight in them. Splendid and majestic is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He has given food to those who fear him. He will remember his covenant forever. He has made known to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are truth and justice. All his precepts are sure. They are upheld forever and ever. They are performed in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Before we begin, go through the, the psalm here, just a couple um, background notes and overview. Uh, when you, the psalm itself has no author given to us. Uh, there's no date that we uh, know of with this psalm. Those are unknowns. The psalm has uh, some relatives here in the surrounding context. Uh, psalm 111, Psalm 112, and Psalm 113 are, are a group. If you look at them carefully, each of them begin with praise the Lord. And there's some similar themes, actually, in these psalms. Especially with Psalm 112, if you look at 112 and 111, they're actually kind of twin psalms. Uh, Psalm 111 and 112 have the similar themes. And both of these psalms are acrostic poems. That is to say that each, each line in this psalm begins with the, a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So line one begins with the first letter of the Hebrew, Hebrew alphabet, and the last line ends with the, the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And when you ask yourself, well, why does the author structure his psalm this way? Why would he use an acrostic poem to, um, to compose his psalm here? Well, I think the first thing you could think about is that an acrostic poem would help people to memorize the psalm. Most people didn't have a copy of the scriptures in their homes, and they would hear it being read, and having the acrostic poem would help them to to memorize it, to remember it. There could be also the idea that the the, the acrostic poem uh, shows completeness and unity of the theme. It's it's a, a, a to Z, It's although that's not, of course, the that's the English, but uh, you get the idea that A to Z, the whole theme of the psalm is being, is complete. It's, there's a unity in there. And since we're talking about theme, what is the theme of our psalm today? Well, let's, quick, let's look at here, here. You'll notice the first line begins with praise the Lord. If you look at the last line of uh, verse, in verse 10, it says, His praises endure forever. So we know right away uh, that this is a praise psalm. This is a, a thanksgiving psalm. You can just see that in verse 1 as well. He says, I will give thanks uh, to the Lord. And so this psalm is a psalm of praise. The, the next question is, well, what is he praising God for? Or what is he praising God about? Well, look, look, just look with me here. Uh, verse 2 talks about the works of the Lord. Great are the works of the Lord. Verse 3 talks about... Uh, Splendid and majestic is his work. Verse 4 talks about his wonders, which is the synonym there for works. Verse 6 talks about the the power of his works. 
Verse 7 talks about the works of his hand. I think as you hear that repetition, you can get the idea here that the psalmist is praising God for his works, for what he has done. And so our theme today is, is praising the Lord for his great works. And our outline is, is rather simple. Uh, verse 1 is the resolve to praise the, God's works. And verses 2 to 9, the, the main body of the psalm, is the remembering of God's works. And then verse 10 is going to be the, the result of remembering God's works. So the first point where we'll look at here is verse 1. <clears throat> the resolve to praise God's works. Notice what it says there, verse 1. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart in the company of the upright and in the assembly. And so the psalmist begins this, 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 this poem, he gives, begins this psalm with a, a declaration of his resolve, his commitment, his determination to, to praise the Lord. He says there, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. The, the, word, the word there that give thanks there has more to it than just being thankful. Uh, the word has the idea also of, of praise. I will give praise. Or, or you could even uh, translate it, uh, acknowledge or confess. Um, uh, there's an idea, a public idea here of, of acknowledging, of confessing before other people uh, God's praises, God's thankfulness, even the confession of sin, as it were. And so here there's an idea then of a determination to praise God before other people. You can see that just even in the rest of the verse, that there's this public aspect to this uh, resolve to praise the Lord. Notice what it says there. It's in the company of the upright and in the assembly. In the company of the upright. Uh, that could, some people have uh, uh, thought of that as a, as a small group. And uh, of believers. And then the assembly would be a large group of believers. But, but whether it's a, a large group of believers or a small group of believers, the psalmist is, is de determined among God's people to declare his praises. The psalmist is not going to be worshiping alone. He wants to worship with God's people. He wants to let everybody know about God's praises. And it's not, he's, not just, he's not just thinking of himself, but he's thinking of the corporate body. And this again reminds us that, that worship is not to be done just alone. There are important times for, for public worship. We're, we're not to function as, as lone rangers, as, as just individuals. We're meant to live and to worship and to serve with each other. I think we've, we've learned that over this year that we need each other, that we need to worship together, and that if that doesn't happen, that's that we, we, it's for our detriment. It's for the, um, it will hinder our spiritual health. And so the, the psalmist here knows that and he wants to worship with God's people. You, you see, there's also a passion in the psalmist here, a passion for worship. And a wor that passion should be our worship as well. Notice at the end there of that first, the, the second line there, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. Notice, with all my heart. His worship is not going to be half-hearted. It's not going to be cold. It's not going to be formal. It's not just something he does because he's supposed to do it. There's a passion in him. His whole being is consumed in this. His whole heart is consumed and engaged in worship. This is no going through the motions for the, for the psalmist. He's excited because worship and praise, because his God is so awesome so wonderful. He, he can't contain himself. And really, this is how our worship should be as well. And yet, you know, when I think of my worship, oftentimes it's, it's much more, it's too cold and too half-hearted. And I think you could probably say the same at times. And yet, that kind of worship dishonors God. What does cold, half-hearted worship say about our God? It says, that our God is, is, is boring or ordinary or unexciting. And so God is most is glorified when our worship is, is filled with passion and excitement. And that was the psalmist here. He, he wanted to worship God with all his heart. 
Well, our worship and our praise needs to have substance. We don't just praise God mindlessly, repeating words over and over again. Um, there's, there's a reason for our worship. There's a substance to it. There's truth that girds up that worship, that brings out that passion. What is the reason for the psalmist's worship here? What is the reason for his passion to, to go before God's people and, and to praise God? Well, you can see that uh, in the next section here, verses uh, 2 to 9, the, the remembering of God's works. The psalmist is, is going to praise God for his works, for his deeds, for his acts, for what he has accomplished. Notice the first line there. Great are the works of the Lord. God's works are great. Uh, they are great in number. They're immeasurable. They're infinite. There's more than you can count. There's more than you could ever dream of. They're great in importance. They're great in significance. They're great in wisdom. They're great in power. They're great in love. God's works are indeed great in all ways, in all aspects. We could ask the question, well, what, what are we talking about God's works? What are God's works? Well, there are his works of creation. Um, when God spoke and the whole universe just came into being, uh, I mean, in a, in a universe of a measurable size, and God simply just spoke universe, and it just happened. Uh, and uh, God created, spoke, and he created all the creatures. And, and so his works of creation. Think of the greatness of the, the size of the universe, the planets, the stars. Um, so we're thinking of great size and, and complexity. Um, even just think of the greatness of, of things that are small. Uh, this week I was looking through one of my creation magazines and they did an article on an E. coli bacteria. And there's a little, they, they, they've learned some things about this uh, bacteria and it was exciting. Be bacteria aren't usually very exciting. Uh, and I don't like E. coli bacteria very much. Uh, but you can, it's amazing what God has done in this tiny little bacteria. It, there's motors and there's all sorts of, uh, it's fascinating stuff. And, uh, and think of that. That's just one bacteria. And there's hosts of these things everywhere. And all of those are God's works. God has created all of them. And you could just think of, so you can think of the high things like the stars and the planets. And you can think of low things like bacteria. You can think of flowers and, and elephants and all sorts of creatures. God's works of creation are great. Well, then there's his works of providence. God's, God's providence is his, his daily control over all the events of life so that his eternal purposes are accomplished. And God's works are, are great, even just in the daily, in the mundane of life. God ordering little things here and there, his control of all the details and events of life. What we're talking about here is just history. Even the fact that God can take evil can take uh, the, the, the designs of the devil and, and to turn them for his own purposes and make them work for his own good. Those are the works of God. Those are his works of providence. There's also his works of revelation. That comes out kind of in this psalm as well. The works of the fact that he has given us his word, preserved his word, that he has uh, used men who were moved along by the Holy Spirit to, to record his word to us. Uh, there's his works of redemption. Uh, we could think of Israel's redemption from slavery in Egypt. We could think of the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ from sin, uh, from the curse. Uh, we could think of his works of justification, sanctification, adoption, glorification. All those things are works of redemption, the works of God. And those are great works. Those are awesome works. And what should we do with all these works of God? What does the psalmist want us to do with all these works of God? Well, he wants us to study them. Notice there, verse 2, they are, to be, they are studied by all who delight in them. The word study here has the idea of investigate or inquire, uh, ponder, research. And so the idea there is not just that you, it, it, it takes work, it takes effort. There's time and effort needed to, to understand the significance of God's works, to take time to study them, to look at them, to consider them. 
in a sense, it's like mining for gold. You don't get gold. It doesn't just come to the surface. It takes work to get it. And so when it comes to God's works, uh, they're to be studied, which means it's going to take some time and work to bring out the gold, to bring out the, the beauty of them, to understand the significance of them. Because there are people in the world who, who study God's works and receive no benefit from them. Uh, people who study them just for the simple uh, knowledge that it brings, or, or they study them for the sake of studying them. Uh, people can admire creation for its own sake without worshiping and praising God. And so we, when we study, there's a, there's a work and effort that's needed, but it's also it's a, for a specific purpose. And, and as we study God's works, what, what is our purpose in doing that? Well, our purpose in studying God's works is to see God's glory and God's attributes in his works so that we can praise him, so that we can worship him for that. And you can notice this, you can see this in the next line and throughout the psalm as we'll, we'll see here. Verse 3 says, Splendid and majestic is his work and his righteousness endures forever. God's works reveal the glory of his sovereignty. They reveal the God as sovereign, eternal king. They, they show his kingly majesty. They display his glorious power. God's deeds also uh, display his and reveal his, his righteousness. All God's works are, are right and just. There's no error in them. There's no flaw in them. All that God has done and is doing is in perfect unison with his righteous character. One of the things you could see in this psalm as you, as you look at it, there's, a, there's this back and forth between God's works and God's character. You can see that verse, our, our verse that we just looked at here, verse 3, but verse, verse 4 talks about his wonders, and then it says God is gracious and compassionate. Verse 7 and 8, the works of his hand are truth and justice. Uh, they are all his precepts are sure. They are upheld forever. They are performed in truth and righteousness. And you see his works and his character being intermingled. Verse 9 talks about how awesome and, or holy and awesome is his name. And all these attributes come in the context of God's deeds, God's works. Steve Lawson says this, Who God is can't be separated from what God does. God's attributes and his actions are inseparably united. And we can see this in, uh, in daily life, and I'll use an example from, my, from myself. Um, my gift of drawing is, not, is non-existent. I, I cannot draw very well. I do pretty good stickmen, and uh, I'm very good at that. Uh, I can do some stickmen. And, and when I, you see some of my pictures, uh, you'll see I don't have a lot of skill. My, my, my pictures reveal that I don't have a lot of skill in drawing. Now, if you look at it like a Rembrandt or a Van Gogh and you study that, well, you, his, his painting reveals uh, that he was a very skilled uh, person in painting. And the same is true about God. God's works reveal, are, are perfectly consistent with his character. They reveal, about, uh, reveal him, reveal his glory. And so when we study the works of God, we want to see the glory of God. So that we can, not just so that we can see it, but we want to worship him for it. We want to praise him. We want to praise him publicly even. And so is this what you delight to do? Do you delight to study the glory of God in his works? You know, when you think of, when you go, when you think of the different sciences, um, like biology, and chemistry, geometry, physics, and astronomy, and even mathematics. Um, all of those things reveal the glory of God. And so when you study those subjects, you're not just studying to get information. Uh, as a Christian, you can study those things and see the glory of God and worship Him for it. It changes uh, education immensely when you realize that the glory of God is on display in His works. What about history? I don't know why people don't like history. Uh, I love history. I enjoy history. If you don't like history, I feel for you. Um, but when you study history, church history, you are seeing God's providence. You're seeing the glory of God on display in how he operates and how he preserves his church, how he raises up men to do his work, 
You are studying the glory of God in all subjects. And it just, it, when you understand this, it, it, it provides a sacredness to all study. It provides a higher purpose to everything that you do because you're not just studying facts and figures. You're studying the glory of God for worship. Today is the last Sunday of the year, and so uh, I, I was, as I was thinking about that, one of the things that I do at the end of a year is I look over my year and I consider and, and think about what God has done in this year and, and where I've grown and, and things that I've fallen in. And, uh, and I think about the year. And I think it's a good practice. It's not uh, something that it's a commandment, but I think it's a good practice at the end of the year to, to reflect on the year that was in your personal life. And whether you do it now or whether you do it in the middle of the year, it doesn't matter, but it's good to go back and to to think about what God has done in your life. And so as we end this year, I would encourage you and think think about what God has done in your year. How has God answered your prayers? How has God provided your needs? What did God teach you this year? Uh, how, How have you grown this year? Maybe where have you um, regressed it this year? You know, if you just, even just one year, you can see uh, the mighty acts of God in your life. And, and one year brings a lot to study. God's works are great and a delight, even to in one year. And so I encourage you, think about your year. Study the works of God in this year. But I also want to go broader than that being the last Sunday of the year, I want you to think about the works of God uh, in this year of Grace Life Church. This year was like a year like no other year, Uh, a year that was unique, uh, a year that was unprecedented in the life of our church. And when you think about what God has done in this church, through our church, Um, there is so much to praise God for. There's so much to thank God for. So just bear with me here. Hopefully you'll enjoy this. I want to go a little bit over the year and think about the works of God that he has done in this church. And hopefully you can take this, what I've kind of put together, and, 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 and go further with it and just and delight yourself in God and in what he has done this year. So in the works of God in Grace Life, you know, we, we began this year as a church uh, with the police coming in, we AHS coming in, we had the media outside giving our church a lot of attention. Uh, if you remember, it was probably weird to see the sermon clips on the news. Um, we even having the police come in our building. Um, I'm sure you can remember all of that. You remember maybe the fear Maybe the excitement, all the mumbled emotions that were going on, and uh, wondering what was going to happen. And then um, you remember that in, uh, in February, Pastor James was jailed for five weeks. He did a little prison ministry for a while. Um, and then soon after his release from jail, our, our church was closed and triple fenced. You remember all the attention that we received at that time. We had a lot of, obviously, negative press. But we also had a lot of positive um, attention. And think of how God used our church. All the sermons that were preached. All the the interviews that were done. uh, The example that we had. The great impact that that had on on the church in Canada and then the church abroad. We had, uh, if you remember the letter from the church in Germany that they sent to us. Just think of what God has done with our church in that time. All that we went through, but all that God has done through that. There were souls who were saved during this year because of our church, because of what we were doing, because of the sermons that were preached. There were Christians who 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 realized they needed to find a good church, who realized that uh, they needed to find a church that was faithfully preaching the whole counsel of God. And when we think of 
how God used our church in a way that we can hardly understand. And it's not because we were such good people and it's not that we did such great things. I mean, when we think of who we are, what we are but sinful dust and ashes. We are nothing. We haven't always acted or spoken with, with perfect wisdom, with perfect love. Certainly not in this year. And yet God used our sinful, clumsy obedience to do great things. Great things that we can't even imagine. And, and uh, you can talk to Mark and all the letters we received and, and everything that, uh, that has happened and will continue to happen. Our church is forever changed because of this. And God has done great things. And he, as we think of our time when we were homeless, God cared for our church. We traveled from place to place. Uh, we generally had good weather. Uh, we usually had a place to go to. We weren't molested by the police. We were undisturbed. And I think all of you could agree that our times in the wilderness, uh, outside, um, were some of the best times. The fellowship, the, the singing, the, the preaching was, was sweet. We had great times, even though we had no place to go. And God provided for us all that. And then we think of the summer. And, and I know for ourselves, for myself, we were wondering, well, you know, is the, will we have, is the growth continue or will we return back to our normal state? And, and as the summer ended, there was no sign that our church was, was getting smaller. And we have had unprecedented growth. We've had to go to two services. And you think about even this fast fall and winter and how uh, we have continued to meet. We have continued to worship together and we have had no problems. We've had no, uh, very little interference and we've continued on and, and we thank God for that. That's the work of God. That's God's grace, God's goodness in us and allowing us to continue to publicly meet like this. And when you think about that, God's goodness, God's grace, God's mercy in ordering all the events for our church and, and using our church as he did and continue to use it, we have so much to praise God for. We have so much to worship him for. We have so much to thank him for. Don't you agree? Amen. Amen. And I think as we, we did something like this uh, very briefly, you can do this in your own life, and you can see what a blessing it will be to your soul to just reflect on the goodness of God and his works. And it's good for us to do that because God wants his works to be remembered. See that in verse 4. He has made his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. God's wonders are, his, are, are, are miracles that God has done. Um, these are deeds that cause us to marvel in amazement. Deeds that are beyond human ability. Wonders are God's acts that astonish us. And I think in the context here, probably the wonders uh, may be an allusion to the, the plagues in Egypt, the exodus, and even into the, the wonders that God performed in the wilderness. Exodus 3 verse 20 says, I will stretch out my hand and, and strike Egypt with all my miracles. The same word there, miracles, wonders which I shall do in the midst of it, and after that he will let you go. And there's other uh, passages that talk about the wonders, the, mir the miracles that God performed in Egypt. And it's not, just li it's not limited to that, because Exodus 34 verse 10 says, Then God said, Behold, I'm, go I'm going to make a covenant before all your people. I will perform miracles or wonders, which have not been produced in all the earth, nor among any of the nations and all the people among whom you live will see the working of the Lord, for it is a fearful thing that I'm going to perform with you. And so those are God's wonders. God's, we can think of those plagues in Egypt. We can think of all that he did in the Exodus, in the wilderness, um, even into the conquests, as we'll see. How, does, how did God cause his deeds or his wonders to be remembered? Well, first of all, certainly in his word, God has given us his word. He's, he's preserved a record of his redemptive acts in history uh, for Israel. They have the five books of Moses, and they, they had a record of, of the Passover, the, the plagues in Egypt, but also through the different festivals in Israel's calendar. 
Uh, they, they, they celebrated the Passover every year, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They fest- celebrated the Feast of Booths, the, the Feast of, Unle- um, uh, the feast of uh, I have Unleavened Bread here now. I'm repeating myself. Uh, so every year they would celebrate these festivals, and these festivals would, would help them to remember God's redemptive acts in the past, the things that he's done, what he did for the previous generations. And, and that had lasting impact for, for Israel in, in their situation in the future. Israel will be reminded of God's wonders that were performed. And as they would do that, as the next line says, says they will see the, the grace of God, the God's compassion towards them, and his mercy in bringing them up out of slavery and in bringing them into the promised land. In verse 5, and reminds us another, of a, another act of God that showed his grace and compassion. It says there, he has given food to those who fear him, who will remember his covenant forever. The, the, he has given food to those who fear him. Most people, would be, commentators, would believe that this is a, the primary reference here would be to the time in the wilderness when God provided quail for his people, and then God also provided manna every day for 40 years. And so that giving of food, his care for his people, is one of the works of God that the psalmist remembers here. I mean, it is a great work of God. I mean, there's millions of people wandering in the desert, and God provides them with enough food for 40 years. Of course, I don't, I don't think it's limited to the time in the wilderness. God always shows, has always shown his grace and compassion to people by give, providing their needs, by providing them with their food and drink. And that feeding of Israel in the wilderness was a reminder that was evidence that God is a covenant-keeping God. He made a covenant with Israel, and he was faithful. And he was faithful, and he is faithful to, to care for his people, and he faithfully preserved them. Verse 6 gives us another example of one of the works of God. He has made known to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. And the psalmist here is thinking of the conquest of the land of Canaan. The power that God displayed in giving Israel that land. If you remember the land of Canaan, when the spies went in, they came back and they said, you know, it's, it's a great land. It's, it's very productive. It's, it's beautiful. It's lovely. But it's actually filled with giants and it has great cities and, and I don't think we can take it. And of course, that's why they spent all those years in the wilderness and yet, when we think of how, so we know is a formidable place to, to overpower, and yet the Almighty God, through his people, flexed his muscles, and Jericho fell in a heap. The, God sent hailstones that rained upon his enemies and destroyed them. The sun stood still so Israel could, could destroy her, the, the, her enemies. Uh, the giants were cut down to the ground, and Israel received this whole land from God as her own. And so the psalmist remembers that the conquest of the land of Canaan. There was, there, in that, that time, was a great work of God. In verses 7 and 8, the psalmist goes on to praise God for his word as one of his works. It says there, the work of his, works of his hand are truth and justice. All his precepts are sure. They are upheld forever and ever. They are performed in truth and uprightness. So some would see here in this uh, a reference to the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. The works of his hand are truth and justice. All his precepts are sure. There's also a connection, I think, between God's works and his words. God's wor- works, what God does, are often the fulfillment of his word. He's, he's made promises, and then God's, God acts upon those promises. And so what God has decreed comes to pass by his works. And so God, God's works, God's what he does, are often just reveal God's faithfulness to his word, his truthfulness, his uprightness. 
what God has promised God will do, even if precepts, God's commandments, do uh, rulers, uh, when you, especially in our democratic societies and even with the kings before, uh, their rules, their statutes, their precepts were only as good as, as long as they were alive om- often. What you see often is uh, you have one president, uh, one king comes in, he makes rules, he makes laws, he governs things a certain way, and then when he dies, it all comes apart, and the next guy who comes in changes things and does his own thing and, and makes his own rules, his own laws. But the Lord is not like that. Our king is not like that. His laws stand fast forever and ever. They never change. His purposes are stand fast. And therefore, we can trust his promises. He's never failed once to keep his word. What God says, he will do. And so all that he does reflects his righteous character. God's works are never have any, they're never mixed with any error, never anything wrong, anything sinful, sinful as God accomplishes purposes and plans. Verse 9, the psalmist speaks, reminds us of the works of God in redemption. One of the greatest acts of God in the Old Testament uh, was Israel's redemption from slavery in Egypt. Verse 9, he has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Redemption here uh, is referring to the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Uh, the word in the Old Testament has the idea of, of, uh, of rescue or deliver. It, it, it could include the idea of buying something or someone back, but often it just refers to deliverance or, or rescuing somebody. It's in the New Testament where the word gets a more salvific sense. And so the Exodus was a great work of God. God sent ten plagues to crush Pharaoh and the nation of Israel which was a superpower at the time. You could think of all those plagues, the, the frogs, the blood in the Nile, the, the gnats, the, the locusts, the, uh, the, the hailstorms, the, the darkness. And then, of course, the last and greatest one was the, the death of the firstborn in Egypt. And then there was the crossing of the Red Sea where God, one of the God's works was he parted the Red Sea so that Israel could cross through on dry land. And then... One of the works of God was that the, when the Egyptians went across and Pharaoh went with his whole army to chase after them, that God closed the waters over them and drowned Pharaoh and his hosts. And so as the psalmist is remembering that, he's remembering that work of God. And he sees in that God's power, God's wisdom, God's love, God's justice, God's justice and his faithfulness to his promise to Abraham. And so the psalmist in this passage, in this psalm, is remembering uh, God's redemptive work in the, the history of Israel. He's remembering the, the Exodus. He's remembering the time in the wilderness. He's remembering Mount Sinai. He's remembering the conquest of Canaan. And he's, he's remembering that so he can worship God, so he can praise God. He, he sees God's glory revealed in these acts. He sees God's great power, his great love, his great justice, his great compassion, his great faithfulness. And he remembers that. Well, as, a, as God's New Testament people, God's New Covenant people, we also have a redemption to remember. And isn't that what we are going to do after our service? We are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And what do we do at the Lord's Supper? We, we remember what Jesus Christ has done for us. God has given us the Lord's Supper as a way to to remember his redemptive acts in our life. Luke 22, verse 19 and 20 says this. This is Jesus at the the first Lord's Supper. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. And so we remember here, we remember our Passover lamb who gave his life to redeem ours. 1 Peter 1, verse 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile 
way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And so we remember, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember his sufferings on our behalf. We remember how God, he, Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God, which was due to our, because of our sins. We remember that out, those hours of darkness when he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We remember his death. We remember his burial. We are to remember the love in our Savior's heart that caused him to, to do all that for our sakes, to, to redeem us who are desperately wick, wicked sinners. We remember his resurrection that proved that sacrifice, his sacrifice was accepted. Truly, the, the redemption from our guilt, from our sins, is one of the greatest works of God. In fact, the cross, the cross is God's greatest work. In the cross, you see the glory of God most fully on display. All his attributes shine from the cross. And so a study of God's redemption, a study of the redemption of Jesus Christ will reveal to us uh, a glorious God. It will exalt God in our hearts. And all his sh attributes will shine forth as we, as we think about, as we meditate on the meaning and the, the importance of the cross of Christ. And that's what we are here to do today after the service, is to remember the works of God in our life, especially the work of God in redeeming our souls. Well, verse 9 ends with a fitting conclusion to the works of God. It says they're holy and awesome is his name. As the psalmist has reflected on God's redemptive work, as he's re re reflected on God's works in history, in Israel's history, he sees that God is holy. He sees a God who is not like any other God. He is unique. He is distinct. He is beyond any comparison. Who is like Israel's God? There's no one like Israel's God. He is far above all others. He is not like us. He is not like any other God. He is awesome and glorious. He is terrible in holiness. The, the word awesome even has the idea of to be dreaded. There's something to be dreaded about God, something that's terrible in dignity and awesomeness and gloriousness. And really, as we study the works of God, this is what we should be left thinking. Our God should amaze us. Our God should astound us. There should be a sense of awe, a sense of even terror that we are in the presence of such an exalted and holy and awesome God. And at the same time, it's not a fear or terror that makes you run from this God. It's a terror, a fear that makes you run towards this God because you love such a God, because you adore such a God, because such a God has redeemed your souls. And that kind of sounds like the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of true wisdom. And that's kind of where the psalmist goes. He ends with the result of remembering the works of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, he says. A good understanding of all those who do his commandments, his praise endures forever. You'll notice that familiar phrase, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's a phrase you find in the Proverbs, you find it in uh, Ecclesiastes, a lot of wisdom literature. How does that fit with remembering the works of God? Why does he go on from talking about the works of God to now talking about, well, the fear of the Lord and, and wisdom? Well, studying the works of the Lord should produce something in our lives. As we think, study the works of God, as we study what God has done, it shouldn't leave us unchanged. It should leave us in wonder. It should leave us in awe. It should leave, leave us with a greater love for our great and awesome God. It should lead us to uh, a greater understanding of who God is. And, and part, of, uh, under, part of the fear of the Lord is a true understanding of who God is. And so as we study the works of God, we are going to be given a greater understanding of who God is, and that will producing us a fear of the Lord, which will then, which is the foundation or the first principle of wisdom. True wisdom is not found till one fears the Lord. The, the, the second line there in verse 10, a good understanding of all those who do his commandments is, is very 
uh, Hebrew uh, poetry there, it's a synonymous idea with the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all of wisdom. A good understanding here has the idea of, uh, of prudence, of insight, of, of good sense. And so doing his commandments is, is part of the fear of the Lord. Uh, it's the right result of knowing and fearing God. So what is the result of our study of the works of God, especially as we look at this conclusion? Well, studying the works of God will produce a, a greater understanding of who God is, which will lead to an increase in the fear of the Lord, which will produce obedience, wisdom, and worship. Notice the last verse there, or last line there. His praise will endure forever. Many things we do will end, but worship is the one activity that will last forever. And God's praises will endure forever because God's works are infinite, and God himself is infinite, and so therefore God's praises will never will end. So God is to be praised now, and he will be praised for eternity. And notice that we have ended where we began. Our psalm began with praise the Lord, and verse 10 ends with his praise, praise endures forever. So we started our, psal our psalm with a, the psalmist's resolve to praise the Lord, and we end this Psalm praising the Lord forever. And really that is the result. That should be our aim, the purpose of studying the works of the Lord. And so is this your, is studying the works of God your delight? Is your delight to search out and understand the works of the Lord? The whole earth is full of the glory of God. But we can't rightly see or understand that glory unless we're looking with the eyes of faith. So ask God. Seek him in prayer that God would show you as you study his works, that he would show you his glory and that you would study the works of God diligently. This, reminds, this kind of reminds me of a verse, uh, of a hymn by William Cooper about God's work of providence. And he says this. This is just a couple of the, the verses here. It says, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. And this is the verse that kind of came into my mind as I was thinking of this, this psalm. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. God is the one that we should be appealing to, to help us to study his works, to reveal to us his own glory in his works. Before we end, I'm sure there are people here that have no delight in the works of God. There's people here who probably have no interest in worshiping God. Maybe you're blind to all the glory of God that's around you. Maybe you're not, simply not interested. You're not, you don't want to praise God. Or there's no praise of God in your life. And that's a dangerous position. Romans 1 verse 18 says, uh, to verse 21 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, suppre <clears throat> who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is, made, which is known about God is evident within them. For God has made it evident to them. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, worship is the great duty of each human being. God made us to worship him. And to refuse to worship God, to refuse to praise God, to refuse to honor God is a great sin. Look at this passage. They, they didn't honor him or give thanks. And that's why the wrath of God is being revealed upon, upon people who don't honor God or give thanks. Perhaps you don't think that's a very great sin. Perhaps to you that 
you don't think because you don't, you don't you think of great sins as as major sins that that we can all identify. But in this passage, one of the great sin that leads to the wrath of God is simply just that we don't thank God for what He does. We don't honor God for the acts that He's done or for who He is. And to not do that is a great sin that God brings His wrath upon you for. And so I would call you to recognize this. Recognize that not thanking God is a great sin that he will punish you for. And that if, you, if that is your life, if you are hostile towards God, that you have the wrath of God coming upon you because you do not worship him. And it's my pleasure and my, my joy to tell you there's hope. There is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, we remember that at Christmas. We remember the fact that Jesus Christ came to this world. He came as a baby. He came born of the Virgin Mary. He came to to live the perfect life you and I could never live. He came to, to suffer. He came to die on the cross. He came to pay the wrath of God that, that was due to us because we do not thank or worship him. He rose from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. And he offers you forgiveness. He offers you pardon for your sins. And so I would encourage you, if you have not done that today, repent of your sins. Turn to God. Come to Jesus Christ and receive mercy. Receive his grace. We are going to to celebrate God's grace in the Lord's Supper after we close here. Well, let's, uh, let's let's end with prayer. Well, Father, indeed, you are a great God, and you have done great things, great works. And uh, as we've considered even some of your great works, Lord, uh, we just uh, marvel at your kindness, your goodness, your power, your wisdom, and uh, we praise you for it. We worship you for it. We adore you for your kindness towards us, how you hear our prayers, how you order events in our lives, Lord. Lord, we pray that uh, such a psalm as this today will, will help us, encourage us to praise and worship you, to remember your works that you've done in our lives, Lord. Lord, we pray that you would bless the Lord's Supper to our hearts, Lord. May it uh, encourage us, may it comfort us, may it give us grace, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.